It's our custom on Sunday mornings to work through a text of the Bible, seeking to understand what it's communicating and how we can apply it uh, to our lives. Uh, this Sunday, we, uh, for the past few Sundays, have been studying the gospel according to John. Uh, John has written, you can find uh, that passage on page 1,131 of the Bible that's in the pew rack. You can follow along on the screen, or if you have a digital device, you're probably already there. John tells us why he writes this uh, gospel. That's what I really love about uh, John. He's, He's really up front with you. He just didn't stick it at the beginning. He stuck it at the end. So if you... Uh, have marked it, and I've mentioned it before on, in chapter uh, 20, the last, it's not the last chapter, the last chapter is uh, chapter 21, so if you'll just come one back, in verse 20, he tells you, I could have written about all the things that Jesus said and did, but if I did, it would fill all the books of all the libraries of the world. And then in verse 31, he says, but I write these things, he's referring to the seven miracles he records, the seven uh, discourses or teachings that Jesus gave, and uh, the encounters. There are a number of encounters. We're going to look at one of those encounters today. But there are a number of encounters that he records. And he says, I write all those things, these things, in order that you might believe. And so he's telling us that he writes the gospel not as a biography of Jesus, not as a history of the movement of Christianity, but simply as an argument to believe in the claims of Jesus. And Jesus makes two claims that we will see over and over again in this uh, uh, gospel and all the evidence that support these two claims. Who Jesus is, who he claims to be, and what he is claiming he has come to do, what he did. And so you have all of these miracles, all of these teachings, and all of these encounters to give as proof text or evidences if you're in a courtroom to convince you that he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he would do in order that you might believe. Today, Jesus' encounter for us is a woman at the well in Samaria in chapter 4. She's thirsty, and she has come there to fetch water. So hear the word of the Lord as I read from John's Gospel, chapter 4. I'm going to go all the way to verse 30. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from this journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come draw here to draw water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What have you said is true? The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the woman, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. Sprite, which is a... A derivative uh, company of uh, Coca-Cola had an ad campaign in the 90s that uh, told stories of people pursuing their longings and with great pursuit often achieving what they hungered and thirst for, what they wanted. And so the tagline at, at the end of each of those commercials was, obey your thirst. Whatever you want to pursue, whatever you think God or yourself, your deep soul wants, go get. Obey your thirst. One of the things that uh, a Sprite misunderstood is that we always obey our thirst. Nobody ever has to tell you to obey your thirst. You thirsty, you go get a drink of water. If you want uh, to excel and you really want it, you go out and you try to excel. You always, you may not always achieve what you thirst for, but we all pursue our thirst. So no one has to tell us that. And that's true here in this particular encounter with this woman. She 
longs for love. She longs and thirsts to be loved and to love. And she pursues that. She doesn't need a television commercial telling her to obey her thirst. She's already been obeying her thirst. I can't uh, read this passage without thinking of a woman I know named Kathleen. Uh, Kathleen uh, uh, grew up in a large family. She had uh, 10 brothers and sisters, so there were 11 of the children. And her father died when she was three, so, and her mother never remarried, and so she never had a father or never knew a father. Can you imagine? And eight of her brothers and sisters all died before she was 10. So she knew a lot of grief, a lot of sorrow, a lot of loss. She also was a twin, a twin, and her uh, twin, a brother, whom she deeply loved, had some medical issues, some profound uh, medical issues that would be part of his life for his whole life. And she was responsible for taking care of her younger, well, sort of, by an hour or, or so, younger brother, John, and her younger sister, and because mom had to work in order to keep all the food, the uh, food on the table and the kids clothed. And so when this woman, Kathleen, got to be 18 years old, she wanted a different life. She did not want to live the rest of her life uh, caring for her brother and sister. And so the first handsome man with blue eyes and blonde hair, uh, she married all at the age of 18. She didn't necessarily uh, love him, and he didn't necessarily know how to express his love. He, he grew up in a home of uh, two alcoholic parents. And so not only did he not experience love, he did not know how to communicate that love to anyone else. And so a, 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 a perfect storm was this marriage. A woman who desperately wanted love married a man who didn't know how to express love. And so that was a recipe for a disaster. Sixteen years into their marriage, it all fell apart. Uh, she uh, and took her five uh, children and left. It wasn't long because she only had a high school education. Like her mother, she had to provide food for these five children. And so with a high school education, there's not much opportunity to do that. So she remarried fairly quickly to another man. This man was incredibly an abusive man uh, to those children because they weren't his. He didn't really care too terribly much. That marriage did not last long, but there will be a series of four more marriages and many, many more relationships as she seeks to pursue love. Now, this story is an embarrassing story to tell, but it is part of my story because Kathleen is my mother. The the Lord has uniquely given her, in her sixth husband, a retired Baptist minister as a husband to Mary. We can hope and pray that that is what has brought her uh, to himself, and that is our prayer That's not unlike this woman. She's thirsty. 
She has tried to take the bucket of her soul and put it into men because she wants to be loved and to love. And she has this incredible encounter with Jesus. And it is a shock and a surprise to everyone. Do you see that? It, it, it doesn't use the word shock or surprise, but you even hear it on her lips. In verse 9, when she uh, hears him say, give me a drink, do you see what her response is in verse 9? How is it that you, a Jew, and we can't really pick this up in English, but how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's surprised. She's shocked. But not only is that true, but so are the disciples. That's the reason I went all the way to verse 30, so you could, you could pick up their shock and surprise. In verse 27, the disciples come back from looking for food and, and uh, a shelter. They, they marvel, is the word that's used in there. They marvel that he was talking with a woman. I'll explain why that's such a marvel in a moment. I just want you to understand that this encounter is a complete surprise to everyone but one. The one who intentionally went to a place where Jews don't go. Do you know that? Jesus has been ministering in Judea, around Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. It's gotten a little hot there for him. He's been talking about being the Messiah. He's, he's communicated to them uh, who he is and what he's come to do. And, and because he's claiming to be the Son of God, they, they want to execute him. They want to stone him. And it's gotten too hot to remain in Judea without somebody pursuing him because his time has not yet come to go to the cross. He leaves town. And he wants to go back up to Galilee where he's had some successful ministry to do some more ministry. And if you know on a map, in in a lot of Bibles, you can see it in the back. They'll give you a map. You can see that there's a trail to the, to the eastern side of Samaria that Jews would travel on so they wouldn't go through Samaria. They literally would avoid touching the soil of Samaria because they felt that it made them unclean. And we find Jesus, the reason the first three verses are so important, is that not only was it hot in Jerusalem and he's on his way to Galilee, but he intentionally goes through. I love... How, how the verse says that he had to. He did not have to. Jews for generations have, have avoided going through Samaria, even if it meant getting in a boat and going around uh, Samaria. And here Jesus intentionally goes to this place in Samaria to have this conversation with this woman. you got to understand the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, Way long time before this happened, Jews intermarried with the indigenous people of what we what, what was called Samaria, Palestine today, and and through these relationships had children and became what Jews considered half breeds. Understand that is a racial term. It is racism. What Jews had towards Samaritans. How do we know that? To Touch a Samaritan meant you became unclean. To touch the soil of a Samaritan made you unclean. In fact, Samaritans were forbidden in the temple. It's the reason why Samaritans 
on Mount Gerizim, which is another mountain in Samaria, where they built a temple for themselves so that they could worship. That's why she asked this question. You say God can only be worshipped in Jerusalem. We worship here on on this mountain. That mountain is Mount Gerizim where, where Samaria is. And they built a temple there where the Jews later said, no, 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 that's wrong. So they came and destroyed the temple that was on that mountain that they were worshiping in. So you can imagine the hatred between these two people. Samaritans toward Jews and Jews toward Samaritans. Treated very poorly. I was reading this week an article on a study, a psychological study uh, of Cyprus. If you know anything about Cyprus, Cyprus has two ethnic groups that live on that island. Those of Greek descent and those of Turkish descent. And for generations, they lived apart from each other on the island. They had two different sections of the island in which the Turkish descents lived on and the Greeks' descents. In 1974, they began to allow the uh, intermingling of the two people groups. And so psychologists from the United States and from Europe went into the university there in Cyprus and did a study. Actually, they did two studies. They wanted to make sure that the first study was right. And they were exactly the same in this sense. They went in and they took Greek students and they asked the Greek students to pick a partner to do an experiment, to do a project with. And they could pick a Greek uh, undergraduate student or a, a Turkish undergraduate student. And then once they chose, they wanted to know why. Because they were trying to find out this generations of lack of contact, what it did. What they found was... Among the Greek students, because they didn't survey the Turk students, only the Greek students, that the lack of contact led to not just prejudice, but dehumanization of the other group. That is, they lacked human qualities. It's one of the reasons that the Greek students didn't pick Turkish students to do a project together. The, The second half of the study was... They didn't, have, they didn't have a choice. They had to take Turkish students. And so they just wanted to see their response. What I'm trying to show you is that the lack of contact between the Samaritans and the Jews wasn't neutral. It was caused by a racism that led to a dehumanization of the Samaritans, which is why the Jews were not allowed into Samaria and Samaritans were not allowed into the temple. Now you've got a little context to why this woman is so shocked that Jesus would ask from her a drink of water. But not only is she a Samaritan and he's a Jew, but she's a woman and he's a man. And that's what the the disciples are all amazed by in verse 27. In verse 27... they noted that he's having a conversation with a woman. And rather than, hey, Jesus, what are you doing here? They kept silent about it, but they wondered. Because in the ancient world, and it's still true in many cultures of this world, just not in this one, that men do not have public conversations with women who are not their spouses or children. That's still true in parts of the world today, but it was definitely true in the ancient world here. You don't have a personal, public conversation with a woman who is not your spouse or your child. That's why they're so shocked when they see Jesus breaking a social 
a, a culture for them, a social uh, a right or wrong. And yet we see Jesus having a long, personal conversation with dignity. That is, there's no condescension to this woman of a conversation with her about her loves, about what she thirsts for in the offering of this water. But not only is he a, she a Samaritan and he's a Jew, not only is she a woman and he's a man, but she's an outcast and he's a religious leader. Why is she there alone? Look at verse 6 and 7. In verse 6 and 7, it, in verse 6 it says that Jesus stopped there. It was about the sixth hour and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. It is common that you would get, because you don't have running water in your house yet, that's uh, a millennium later, uh, two millenniums later, they uh, went to a well and they would get all the water that was needed for, for bathing, for washing, for drinking from the well. And typically you went in the morning because why? You're carrying gallons of water. It's heavy. And you don't want to do that in the heat of the day. You want to do that in the morning. And because it's arduous task, you tend to do that in a group because it becomes a social event. Many of the women and many of the children go about the same time early in the morning. It does not mean that women didn't go in the middle part or later part of the day. They did. You use up your, all your water, you go back. Or if you couldn't go with the crowd, you went later. So I'm not saying just because she's alone, it was the only reason. Because we know more of her story, don't we? She's alone. But why is she alone? We're going to learn that she's had five husbands. And the one she currently is living with is not her husband, which makes her a social outcast. For the longest time, I have heard and read and taught that she's an immoral person, but that doesn't take into account the ancient world. In the ancient world, women cannot divorce men. These men divorced her. It is more likely that she was not an immoral person. She was an abused person. She probably was pretty, at least pretty enough, that men were willing to marry her knowing that she had been previously married. And so she moves from one relationship to another. Now, she is agreeing to these relationships. She just can't get out of these relationships on her own in the ancient world. But whether she's the cause or the recipient of the abuse, she is an outcast. Because no matter what culture you're in, in the ancient world, being married five times as a woman does not increase your reputation. It decreases your reputation. And therefore, other people don't want to be around you. Here's my point. My point is that most of us do not have a religion of surprises. And yet, we're seeing here... Christianity is a religion of surprises. Jesus is willing to cross every social, economic, cultural boundary in order to have a relationship and encounter with us. And that's true of this woman and it's true of you. That there's not a race, there's not an economic uh, situation, there, there's not a cultural uh, 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 a barrier that Jesus is not willing to cross 
And he proves it over and over again. In fact, in Luke 15, people forget it's the, it's the list of three uh, parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. We forget that those three parables are all together as a response to something that is said in verse 1 of chapter 15. In Luke 15, the Pharisees and the leaders have come to Jesus and they're complaining, why are you with all the tax collectors and sinners? Why are you with all these people? Which implies, why are you not with us? That is, if the Messiah truly was coming, he wouldn't spend time with the lowly. He would spend time with us who have been spending our whole lives dedicated to preparing people for him coming. Why is he spending so much time with us? And so, the Bible has been very consistent that Jesus has come here for us. And that's what's the surprise, is that he didn't come necessarily for the religious leaders, the people who have been preparing, but for the people who weren't looking, who, who didn't think that God cared any more about them. Think of the culture in which Jesus walked into. They have been subjugated by the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they have been under somebody's boot for generations. They're, they're thinking there's no hope. And yet Jesus walks in and says, I'm the Savior of the world who takes away the sin of the world. Every barrier. That's why it's such a surprise. But it's not just a surprise. It, it's, it, it's satisfying. If we, if, we, if we take this love in, if we, if we understand this love that it's not only is it a surprise, but it's deeply satisfying. And that's why he uses this metaphor of, of, of water and thirst. There's something in our souls that need to be satisfied just as much, if not more, than our bodies need and thirst for water. The point that Jesus is making to her and to us is that all of us have taken the bucket of our souls and have put it down into something that we have longed for, something that we want. And, and two weeks ago, I told you there were at least four things, four categories of thirst that we have. Oh, one is to last. It's one of the reasons that Jesus says that if you drink this water, you'll be a, a what? A spring, a living spring unto eternal life. We want to last. How do you know we want to last? Have you not walked in the front of our building? And what do you see in that grassy area? But gravestone after gravestone after gravestone about people who once were alive. We want to last. We want a legacy. We want somebody to remember our name. We want someone to know that we were. We want to last. But not only do we want to last, we want to love. That's where this woman is. She wants to be loved and to love. That's a, a deep thirst of the human soul. The reason is God created us as communal beings because he's communal. And because he loves his son and loves the spirit and the son loves the spirit and the father and the spirit loves the father and the son, he created us to know and to be loved. And because of that, we thirst for it. We want it deeply. We'll pursue that even to uh, 
ends that are not healthy, that are not good for us. But not only do we want to last and to love, but we want to know and we want to be known. That's a deep, deep deep-seated desire of the human heart. To know someone and to be known. To not just simply love them and be loved. Because truth be told, if we go back to Genesis 3, that's part of the problem. We have settled for love because we don't think if anybody truly knew us, they would love us. And so they love an image of us that we have put forth for others to know. But God knows you and loves you. And then the fourth one I said last week or the week before was this idea of meaning and purpose. We were designed to have meaning and purpose. Human beings do not function well without a purpose, without a goal, without a reason for being. And so we need to have that. Every generation, we tend to think it's the newest generation that's always longing for meaning and purpose. But every generation, I've heard the boomers, the builders, the bus. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just talking about every generation has wanted and longed to have meaning and purpose. That's nothing new. And Jesus here makes a remarkable promise. He actually makes two promises in verses 13 and 14. In 13 and Uh, 14, he says this. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about that physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To hear the two promises. Not only if you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. But if you drink this water, uh, you'll be a wellspring. You'll be a source of this water. That will be welling up in you. And therefore, not only does it satisfy, but it satisfies other people when it's in you. Third, and I think this is the, the point we have been focusing on for the last few weeks, is that the understanding of this kind of water, the believing in Jesus, doesn't for most of us happen all at one time. It happens in stages. It comes to us in a series of conversations, not typically just one. Often we remember the single one that moved us from disbelief into belief, but we tend to marginalize or or, or to, to minimize the idea of all the conversations that led up to that conversation. And if we mapped out our life, we could see that there's been a series of conversations that we've had with lots of different people over time that have led to us to believe. And so it comes to us in stages. Let me just outline these stages that came to this woman where she moves from a spiritual indifference to a spiritual reality and belief in Jesus. The first thing is she gets alone. How, how did she get alone? Her life is messed up. Whether, whether you believe she messed her life up or other people have left her my, messed her life up, it really doesn't matter. Her life is messed up. And what happens when our lives get at a point where they're messed up? We get to a point where we're open to other ideas, other possibilities, other rational beliefs. Why? Because we've tried everything we know to fix the problems that we have, and they have not yet worked. 
And so we tend to be open. It's when we tend to go to a doctor, when we've tried our home remedies, when the aspirin don't work anymore, but I still have the headache, we go to the doctor. This is what happens to her. She's tried five men. She's even tried a sixth one, just not through the institution of marriage. But then he gets very personal in verses 17 and 18. He says, go get your husband. What he's saying, yes, is he's not changing the subject. He's staying on the same subject of of thirst. But now he's saying, what have you stuck your bucket of your soul into? It's into men. Men represent to you to be loved and to love. All I'm asking you to do, because you already have faith, you just put your faith in men. All I'm asking you to do is to transfer that faith from men to me. From men to the Messiah. From men to the Savior. That's all I'm asking. You already got faith. It's in something. Something that you've longed for. You think's the answer that will satisfy what you have longed for. And Jesus is saying, if you just transfer it to me, believe in me and I'll satisfy. But not only does he get personal... He begins to get questions from her. And this is the way it is, isn't it? When we hear a new idea or a new thought that we haven't thought of before or we haven't tried on ourselves, we begin to have questions about it. She has a question. Did you hear a question? Jesus, Jesus says, go get your husbands. And what's her response to that? Besides that, I don't have any. She goes on in, in verse 19 and she says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now she's changing the subject. But she's got a question. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You hear what her implied question is? You wouldn't have known that if you had not known that the Jews had burnt and destroyed their temple. She's asking or bringing up past sins. You brought up my thirst, my sin. Now let me bring up the Jews' sin, the racism the superiority, the hurt and the shame that you've put on us. Do you hear? That's all that's implied in that question of her. You're talking about all this, but it's a bigger issue than the fact that I've got five husbands. How does Jesus answer that? Jesus doesn't say, hey, like we do, we've got a, I've got an illustration I've got to present to you. Can you take your question and put it over the side and, and then I'll do that? Or, you know, that's not really the important question. It is an important question because she brought it up. And he answers it. He goes directly at it. And he says, it's not going to be about where you worship. The Father's coming. And there will be a time where true worshipers will worship Him in spirit and truth wherever you are. He does answer her question. But he always takes her back to her true thirst. To love and to be loved. Because in verse 25, he begins to say to her, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. You see how she's brought it down to who he might possibly be? When he comes, he will be telling us all things. He's going to answer all our questions. And then Jesus says to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. What you've been thirsting for, what you've been seeking, I'm He. I will love you and never reject you. I will love you and never give you a certificate of divorce. 
those things that you had hoped those men would do, I can do for you forever. Eternal life. That's what he's offering her. That's why he's saying, go get, go get whatever you've put your, the bucket of your soul in and compare it to me. Put your, 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 your thirst, your obeying your thirst next to, to me and, and just see if it holds up, if it's in near comparison to me. I'm all these things, all these things that you have sought, they point to me. I'm the only thing that can truly satisfy completely what you thirst. And I just want you to understand, particularly for those of you who question Christianity, you're still trying it on, it comes in stages. It doesn't come all at once. If you're looking for a click, you're looking for a switch you can throw, there may not be one in your case. And in most people's cases, it doesn't happen like that. For a, for a few, yes. But what do we do? We take those few that have those dramatic moments of, of where their lives were completely altered as they understood the gospel. We put them up front as if that's the normal testimony. When in reality, the normal testimony is not like that at all. For many of you, particularly those of you who are, are teenagers and grew up in the church, you, li- you lived in the church But it never became your faith until much later. Why do we make it odd when that's the norm? The abnormal or the one that is miraculously different is the one where someone who lived this way and then all of a sudden truth came crashing in on their heart. And in a moment, it was a change. And then just let me share this and we're done. It is amazing what this woman does when she begins to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. Jesus, in verse 27, just in the disciples, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, uh, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of, out of the town and were coming uh, to him. His disciples marveled. She was shocked. The only person in this whole conversation that wasn't surprised or shocked was Jesus. That's the way it is with our stories. We're shocked. We're surprised. We're the ones with categories. You ever notice that? Religious people tend to be the people with categories. We tend to put people in categories. Those that will believe and those that won't. Those that are open and those that are closed. Nobody would have put this woman in, that, in the category of open. Nobody would have put this woman in the category of close to Jesus. His love goes through the boundaries to us. And then she became a spring of living water for her people who had rejected her. We marvel at her because she goes back to the very people who don't want to be around her and tells them not, you need to go see Jesus. She does that later. But she first says, I met a man who told me everything I had ever done wrong. He knew all my sins. That's no problem. Imagine how they would have received it if that's all that she had said. Great, we all knew it. We've been talking about it for ages. 
You know, when we go to the water, when you're not there, who, who do you think we talk about? That's why we go. You're the subject. You're the subject of this town's embarrassment. So when she says, I met a man who knew everything that I ever done, it's not a surprise to them. But then she says, come and meet Jesus. And they do. Why? Because of her own testimony is so powerful of a woman who has been thirsting, dipping the bucket of her soul into men, into seeking love, thirsting for love, and now has found it not in her husband, but in her Savior, who then will become her husband forever. Isn't that, isn't that the way the Bible describes you? The bride of Christ? He's willing to go beyond all the boundaries to get to us. So, today, will you follow her to Jesus? We tend to make this message about all those out there who don't believe. And there are some. And that's okay. You're still trying on, trying to figure this out. That's okay. Keep coming. But this passage is to all of us. Because even those who say they believe in Jesus keep dipping the buckets of our souls into things that we thirst for. And to have those things along with Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus is saying, find your thirst in me. And I will be your satisfaction. Compare it. Go ahead, Christians. Go ahead. Those who aren't yet Christians, followers of Jesus... Compare what you long for, what you want most. For some of you, it is to be married. For some of you who don't have children, it's to have children. For some of you who are underemployed or unemployed, it's to be employed. For some of you, it's to have fame and recognition because nobody notices you at work. All of those things. Jesus saying, come and compare them to me. See if they satisfy or I satisfy what you most long for. I see you. I know you. And I sent my son here for you. God demonstrated his love for you. Even while you were still opposed to him. He died for you. And that doesn't matter whether you're a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus yet. To come to grips with that understanding changes everything. All Jesus is asking you to do is transfer your faith. You already have faith in something. Just transfer it to him. And we act like that is a one and done. That's something you will do every day of your life. Because every day you wake up, you're thinking about what? Your thirst. In fact, it's often the last thing you'll think about before you go to sleep. And Jesus is saying, if you drink of the water I give, you will never thirst again. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, this beautiful lady that we don't even know what she looks like or how she sounds. We know, she, we know what we know, which isn't much. 
But we do know that she drank the water that Jesus could give. And she has been leading for 2,000 years people to Jesus. And so I pray, Father, that that we might drink it too and become wellsprings for others to come and drink and be satisfied. In Jesus' name, amen.